Welcome to episode 8 of Neurotransmissions. I'm Ben, and with me as always are Misha. Hello. And Joe. Hello. Today we have an interview with Dr. David Furster. He is a professor emeritus from Northwestern University. Uh, He's had a long and accomplished career studying the visual cortex, uh, and uh, he is now retired and developing tools that other neuroscientists can use to improve their research. And one of the central themes of his uh, career is that he tries to reconcile theoretical models with experimental evidence surrounding basically one singular question, which is how do neurons in the visual system develop selectivity for specific features in the world? This is more or less like how neurons are encoding or or selective to an object in the world. Right, exactly. Like how does the brain see stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So let's listen to your interview. Dr. David Furster, uh, thank you for talking to us. My pleasure. This is a first for our podcast, actually. We've never had a professor emeritus, and uh, you are newly professor emeritus. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, two, two and a half years ago. And, and you've been at Northwestern since the early 80s, I believe. That's right, 1982. So I'm interested um, because from my perspective uh, as a postdoc, um, I, I don't know that I could imagine getting to the point where I, I would be ready to retire. You so know, what I, is that process like? I mean, how do you come I, to that? I didn't either. Uh, it was a great surprise to me. I expected that I would be doing science actively a lot longer than I did. I mean, 40 years is a long time. Uh, you know, I started as a graduate student in 1974, and uh, so went for almost 40 years as an active scientist and, and was intending to become an active scientist even before that, right? I was aspiring to become a scientist for, since I can remember, really. What was it as a, as a Was there something? How, how, yeah, how does a person, as a, such a young person, decide to do that? You know? I don't know. I was always attracted to how things worked. Um, and so... I knew I wanted to do some kind of, and I, you know, I took things apart. I broke them. I, <laughs> um, I wanted to, in, in, I, I knew I wanted to be some kind of engineer or physician or scientist from very early on. Um, did you try? Yeah. Did you try the other career uh, options, or was it by the time you got to high school or, or college you oh, realized no, that science, I, I science was the way? No, I prepared. I took all the prerequisites for a medical degree when I was in college, but I realized early on that that I really wanted to do science. I didn't want to, uh, you know, do patient care or things like that. So you were at Brown for your undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. You you have you majored in physics. That's right. Um, which is uh, we've spoken to other neuroscientists who start out as physicists. Mm-hmm. And very into, very common way. But you yeah. went into neuroscience in graduate school. Is that That's right? right. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So and I, we might be burying the lead, but um, yeah. your graduate advisors are two of the most well known and textbook neuroscientists probably in history. That's David Hubel and Torsten Weasel. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you decide to try to join their lab? Had you known about them before you went to grad school? Uh, yes. When I was an undergraduate, I, well, I was doing physics, but I got introduced to neuroscience by a, a number of different things. But one of the main ones was that um, Leon Cooper was a professor of physics at, at Brown. 
and he was just starting to look into uh, his models of development. He got interested in neuroscience, and he, he was making these very beautiful models of neural function and development using quantum mechanical operator notation, and he gave a small presentation in the physics department at Brown, and, and I found it completely uh, engaging and uh, interesting. And so I started looking more into neuroscience. I, I went off to the library and found David Marr's the vision paper. Book? No, the paper that David Marr wrote on the model of the cerebellum, mm. uh, which I read and understood maybe about 20% of. And I also read a popular book on neuroscience uh, that was out at the time, and it mentioned Hubel and Weasel uh, and their work, and, and I thought that was really cool. Um, so I took a course in neuroscience um, at Brown. I took a, it was a physiological psychology course and decided that I wanted to pursue that in graduate school. And one of the places that I knew I wanted to apply was Harvard, which is where Hubel and Weasel were working. And that year, they happened to have an opening in their laboratory. Because you didn't go to graduate school, at least you didn't go to Harvard as a free agent. You went uh, to, join, the to join a particular lab right so from no the very beginning. So no rotations or anything no. like that? No. Um, and they, they happened to have a, a spot in their lab. So I was very lucky that they, that they selected me. And, I went and worked with them. And what was, I mean, you've covered over your career, mm -hmm. um, it was outlined today during mm -hmm. uh, your talk, a, every feature of, uh, <laughs> of V1 that you can imagine. What, what was your first uh, study in V1? What was your dissertation? My Let's dissertation. Take a step back. V1, yeah. uh, talking about the, for, for the, for the uh, listeners uh, who are not familiar. Yeah. Right? Uh, so the visual pathway, um, luckily it's fairly short to get up to where, mm -hmm. where you studied, but mm -hmm. the retina in the eye is the first stage of visual processing, which projects to LGN in the thalamus, that's the lateral geniculate nucleus, mm -hmm. which then projects to primary visual cortex. And it's this projection from LGN to V1, primary mm -hmm. visual cortex, um, that something sort of magical happens. This was right. established when you got into their lab, Right. Point. So Hubel and Weasel published their seminal paper on orientation select, laying out orientation selectivity in 1962. Um, Which is that the, the, the concept that the, neurons that, in V1 respond preferentially to oriented right. edges, essentially. The, the different neurons uh, are sensitive to different orientations of contours. Um, and so they, they published their, that, that amazing paper in 1962, so it was already 12 years old by the time I got to their laboratory. Uh, and I initially did a, a fair bit of anatomical work on the thalamocortical projection with Simon LeVay. And then as my independent thesis project, I worked on binocular vision, which is how neurons are sensitive to the potentially the depth or the distance of objects from the, the eyes by virtue of comparing the two uh, images in the two eyes. Um, because we each eye looks at things from different, slightly different position, you can use that, the difference in those views as a, a means of 
um, divining what the distance to a particular object is. And so I did some experiments on that system. Uh, when I was finished, I knew that I wanted to look more at the circuit mechanism. I mean, this is something that many, many people have been interested in, right? There are hundreds or thousands of people that have been inspired by Hubel's and Weasel's uh, experiments. But um, what I was particularly interested in was the possibility of recording intracellularly from neurons to see if we could start to look at the circuit mechanisms that give rise to these wonderful selectivities of the neurons for orientation and depth and direction of motion and so forth. And so I um, went specifically to a lab that did intracellular recording um, uh, to learn that technique, although it was in a department that was mostly focused on the, the spinal cord. But then, but e even so, my advisor and I worked on visual on the visual cortex, trying to get recordings of synaptic potentials. And so, yeah. people up to that point have recorded uh, intracellu intracellularly in uh, in vitro preps. No, no, there were very few in vitro still, preps at that even. time. Uh, it was mostly most in, well, or certainly not. There were no slices. There weren't, weren't brain slices or they were just developing at that time. Most mammalian intracellular recording was done in vivo, in the whole animal, in the spinal cord, where the neurons are quite large. Right. Um, and, or, or they were done in, in other animals, like leeches or frogs. You know, frogs or things like that. So I went to learn that intracellular recording technique to try to bring it to the, and my advisor at, and I at the time brought it, you know, worked in visual cortex. There, there were precedents for that. There were a couple of groups that had already made attempts at doing that and got some very interesting data. But I wanted to use a slightly different, sort of different intellectual approach to, to that, to using that technique. And so I wanted to learn it for myself. So you're motivated by a question to understand what's happening mm -hmm. at a synaptic level mm -hmm. in a live brain. Mm -hmm. So in vivo whole cell recording ultimately comes out of this, this urge to get at that question. Right. So the, the technique that we used in, when I was a postdoc, in, uh, in, Sweden. What, in Sweden this was, was... Um, the standard technique at the time, which is uh, for intracellular recording, which is what's called sharp electrodes. You um, make a very, very fine micropipette that you insert through the membrane into the interior of the cell. And the difficulty with that is that you're poking a hole in the membrane of the cell, uh, and the cells are moving a little bit because the animal is breathing and the heart is, the heart is beating and so forth, and the brain is not particularly steady. And so as soon as you poke a hole in the cell, which is only 10 or 15 microns in diameter, the, the relative motion of the electrode and the cell tear, tear the cell apart eventually or quickly. And so it's very difficult to maintain high quality recordings, high quality access to the internal membrane potential of the, of the cell for long enough to get a decent amount of information. And I struggled with that as a, I, I continued doing that technique for several years after, um, after my postdoc, but it's, it was very unyielding. <laughs> it was very difficult. And I wanted to find a better way 
of getting access to the interior of the cell and, and to record the membrane potential there. And of course, in, in the 80s came along the, the method of patch recording from Nair and Sackman, which was primarily, well, exclusively done in vitro, right, in isolated cells or slices. Um, and I was desperate enough to find a good way to record from cells that I thought, well, why don't I try that in vivo? And, and uh, a couple of colleagues were pushing me to do that. Um, and So this is about so, a, a decade after So yeah, this was in 1990, 1991, that we were really struggling with the intracellular, the, the sharp electro technique. And so we went, so I, I tried this patch recording. I went to a, an in vitro patch recording laboratory, spent a day watching somebody do it, and went back to the lab and tried it in, in vitro. Sorry, sorry, tried it in vivo. How long till it, till it worked? It worked the first experiment. Oh my God. Yeah, it's not as hard as people think. Um, it's hard to, to do well, but to just get a patch recording in, in vivo is, is not. It's doable. It's, it's quite doable. And so the thing about patch recording is that you're not, um, you're not poking a hole in the membrane, you're bringing the electrode up to the surface of the membrane and, and uh, uh, sort of setting the, the electrode down on the surface and then using suction to break the seal, break the hole uh, in the center of the electrode. And so now you have a much tighter, you have access to the interior of the cell, but it's a much more mechanically stable and strong uh, connection, which allows you to record for much longer and uh, a much higher quality without disturbing the interior of the cell so badly. And that allowed us to get to, to, to really start doing systematic and more um, quantitative analyses on the cells that we were recording from. And was it, was it higher yield than the Sharps recordings? Wait, well, yes, higher yield in the sense that that we could get many more long, stable recordings. Right, you can get lots of recordings with sharp electrodes, but they're very brief and poor quality. You don't get as many recordings with with um, patch electrodes, and you have to change the electrode every time. It's a more cumbersome technique. But when you get a recording, it's so much more more um, fruitful. You get so much more data and such so much higher quality data. And so it's a, it's a very nice technique for that reason. So uh, being in this field uh, for, for a while and uh, being introduced to these new kinds of techniques, do you mm -hmm. feel like um, you sort of kept with the same research but were able to improve upon it over time with the, or the same uh, kept in the same field were able to improve your results over time? Or do you right. feel like you were striving towards uh, kind of an end goal and did you... Do you feel like there's like a major accomplishment of your work or, or just lots of little ones throughout or lots of big ones throughout, I guess? Well, I mean, the, there was always the same question throughout, which is how do, how do neurons do computation, right? That's the larger question. Um, they do it off a lot differently from, you know, computers or electronic circuits. And so the question is, how is it done? And... Um, and our preparation or, or the example of computation that we were interested in is this m m 
transformation from non-specific, non-orientation selective responses in geniculate to these extraordinary selective responses in the visual cortex. And we, you know, there's that one synapse where that happens. The, the presynaptic cells in the geniculate are not selective and the postsynaptic cells in the cortex are. And so the question is, how is that being done by the cortical circuit? And how is the computation achieved? And so that was always, that was always the central question. And the, so the progression was that as the techniques improved, as we improved the techniques and developed this patch recording, that we could use that to ask the same question that we were asking before, but get a whole lot better, whole lot richer set of data to, to analyze. And I would say that, I'm, I'm veering off the topic a little bit, but the best part about the whole thing is that there was a lot of uh, computational work that was developing in parallel with our experiments. There were a lot of computational neuroscientists who were interested in the same question, right? Can we understand how computation is done? What are the actual um, mathematical uh, operations that are being performed by neurons, and how do the neurons perform those operations? And so people were uh, developing very, very specific models of this exact system, the visual cortex. And the models made very specific predictions. And so we wanted to test those predictions. And so the tools that we developed, right, the intracellular record, or the tools that we adopted, intracellular recording, or developed, which was the patch recording, were always aimed at making those tests, testing the predictions of the models, trying to distinguish between the different models or, or to, um, you know, do, you know, to test the predictions, basically. And, and this put you at odds with a lot of people in the theory community, well, in some sense, yes, because... Yeah, you could call it being put at odds with, and of course, in the moment, you felt at odds with, with uh, no, that's not how it works. But in fact, I would say in retrospect that, that it was a wonderful process, right? Because it, it forced the, the models and their predictions and the, the discrepancies or the, the holes in our understanding that the models pointed out were the driving force for our experiments. I would not have done many of these experiments had it not been for the modelers saying, wait a minute, you haven't accounted for the following uh, properties of the neurons that you're recording from. Your, that if, if we take your data at face value, you can't explain how this, you know, where the behavior of the cells is coming from, as I elaborated, tried to elaborate in my uh, talk today. And so the, the models were, I mean, it would be exasperating because I would, in a sense, in, in the moment, because I would get a result and think, okay, now I understand. And the models would say, well, no, you don't actually understand. You must be wrong. You, you either must be wrong or, but, or there's something missing. And so it forced us to think a lot more deeply about the, about the system that we were studying. In, and, and, we, and I wouldn't have done that without the, the, the spur of the computational work. So in a way, it was very physics-like, you know, the, our the, the um, caricature of how physics works is that 
you know, there's a model, there's a theory like Newton's theory, and then you find that that Mercury, Mercury's orbit doesn't conform to Newtonian physics, and so that forces you to think about what the next step is, and that led to Einstein, right? And so there's this um, dialectic between experiment and theory that that um, we have very um, um, specific models of from physics. And it kind of worked that way in this case, that, that um, the theory is what drove the experiments, and the experiments, in, I think, in turn, helped drive people to come up with new models. And it was terrific. I mean, it's a, it's a great process. It really helped move, the, move me forward in any case. Uh, <clears throat> so if I can ask, I guess, a, well, let's see question. Um, you mentioned uh, you were comparing kind of uh, brains to or saying that, you know, brain is not like a computer, mm -hmm. right? We, we can have computation or models, but mm -hmm. computers and brains are mm -hmm. uh, different in a lot of ways. Is it, um, I guess a lot of people would want to know this, right? Is it, is it just that our computers are not uh, complex enough? For example, neurons are not like transistors, but is a mm -hmm. neuron like it's an, like an entire computer? Or are the systems vastly different to the point where, you know, if I wanted to, if I had a super, super, super computer and I wanted to design mm -hmm. a brain on it, it wouldn't work? Um, well, that's a very complicated question. And there are <laughs> lots of people who are way more expert than, at that than I. But in essence, transistors or the way that transistors are arranged in computers is digital, right? They have signals that go either on or off. And, and you use millions or billions of those gates they're called as they're called to to make um, various kinds of computations all the things that computers can do um, but it's all based on ones and zeros right binary binary logic neurons are are not like that at all they're analog devices um, that in the sense that the the membrane potential of the neuron can vary um, over a range of signals, continuously over a range of signals, and not just be on or off. There's an aspect of neurons that is digital, which is the action potential, right? That seems like a digital signal, but in fact, in many cases, it's not the single action potential that is, is relevant, it's the frequency of action potentials, and that, again, is an analog signal. It varies from zero to a hundred spikes per second or a thousand spikes per second or whatever. So just right off the bat, neurons are way different from, from uh, digital gates. And, and, and also digital uh, electronics, the gates tend to have few numbers of inputs, right? There'll be an OR gate, right? Which is, and the output will be the result of the ORing of the two, two inputs or ANDing of two inputs and so on. Whereas neurons have thousands of inputs usually, and they're integrating from, from thousands of presynaptic elements. So they're extraordinarily different in character, the way that neurons work and the way that, that uh, standard digital computers work. You can make computers simulate neurons. Um, you can write a program in which the computer will keep track of the memory and potential in an analog sort of way. and, and you can simulate thousands or, or millions of neurons interacting inside a computer, 
um, but it's very much a simulation. You're, the, the fundamental uh, computations that are going on underneath all that are still digital. <laughs> Right, so it's so, kind of like comparing a, a CD to a uh, to a record. Yeah, right? in, yeah. in a way, yeah. That's a, actually a good analogy. Yeah. But it's sort of a hybrid at the, <clears throat> the neural level, and maybe this is me being stupid and we can mm -hmm. edit this out, but mm -hmm. um, it's sort of like a probabilistic analog signal. If you're talking about a rate code, you're still dealing with uh, these all-or-nothing signals, and right. if you've repeated the same stimulus over and over again, you're not guaranteed to have... right. Uh, like the noise happens in spike counts rather than some analog right. voltage. Right. But 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 for underlying the spike counts is the memory potential. Yeah. And the memory potential is truly an analog continuous signal. Yeah. Um, so so the the spike count as a way of transmitting is is the way of transmitting signals between neurons and it, it's analog in a sense. And then the 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 result the memory potential is also analog so it it's 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 inherently analog yeah it's it's, it's pretty much fundamentally analog i mean there are places where action potentials work a little bit like binary signals in the brain but they're very specialized they're 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 like limited the songbird to, motor cortex yeah or it's limited to very specific sensory kinds of things sensory you know odd sensory inputs and uh, or like um, the interaural timing system, sure. right? That's kind of like a, a digital, has a, a certain digital component to it. The auditory but, system, I guess, differs yeah. from the visual system in terms of right. time scale of right. information processing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Auditory system is very fast. Right. Uh, spike timing appears to be important. I don't know if anybody's Oh, it's definitely, it's definitely yeah. important. It's, it's there. It's well, it's it's well documented. Um, right. Yeah. Um, So, inhibition, mm -hmm. it, it seems like this specter that keeps being raised, I mean, mm -hmm. we talk about how maybe at odds isn't the right term, there's mm -hmm. this sort of symbiotic circular relationship between the theorists mm -hmm. and the experimentalists. Mm -hmm. um, why does everybody want to throw inhibition in there? I mean, it's just because it's an intuitive... Yes, uh... That's right. It's it it's such a it seems so obvious that you could use inhibition to shape selectivity, right? You have a neuron that has a problem, which is how to um, become selective to a stimulus. So, for example, um, direction selectivity is a good one. Why does a neuron respond to motion in one direction but not motion in the opposite direction? And it's certainly um, one way you could do it is to have some kind of input that uh, some kind of excitatory input that itself is tuned. Um, and there's models and actually some evidence that, that, that the excitatory input, the different components of the excitatory input have different timing and so depending on how the stimulus moves and the, the relative delays of the various inputs, they'll reach the cell simultaneously or not and so forth. And so that's a way of, of, um, of sculpting the excitatory input to keep the neuron, to make the neuron selective. 
But that could just be a first step. It seems obvious that you could also use inhibition to prevent the cell from firing as the stimulus moves in the opposite direction. And there are cases of that, for example, in the retina, right, where inhibition is extremely important in shaping selectivity, in, in, in making a cell respond to one stimulus and not respond to the, or making it not respond to the other. And there's so much inhibition around in the cortex. So if the cortex is a machine to create selectivity to orientation and direction and such things, and one of the, one of the primary synaptic mechanisms in the cortex is inhibition, why wouldn't inhibition be important in, 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 in performing that task, the primary task of the cortex? So that's the first issue. The second issue is that there is, at least on the surface, evidence that inhibition is important for selectivity. Because if you uh, put um, chemicals on the brain that block inhibition, orientation selectivity decreases. It, the cells become less selective. And so that seems like pretty good evidence that inhibition is involved in, in creating orientation selectivity and direction selectivity and so on. Um, only that turns out to be an artifact, right? That when you put blockers of inhibition on the cortex, the whole cortex becomes non-specifically more excitable. And we know that there are sub-threshold signals that don't evoke spikes, but that, that, do, that, that are present in the response to the non-preferred stimulus. And you've just made the cortex more excitable that is, you've lowered threshold, so now those stimuli that didn't used to evoke spikes do. And so it, so it may look as if specificity is going down, and it sort of is, but it isn't because you've removed a highly specific inhibitory mechanism, it's because you've just made the cortex hyper-excitable. Um, and there's now some studies um, from Matteo Carandini, and, and for example, that look at this in more detail and show that, that yes, you can explain the loss of selectivity as just a, a um, the, the loss of selectivity when you inhibit inhibition, when you suppress inhibition, that that loss is a result of, of nonspecific excitability. So, so there are many things that would push you initially towards thinking that inhibition was important in shaping receptive field properties in the cortex. And I, thought just the same when I was starting out. I, knew, I figured that I would do an intracellular recording, I would see the inhibition that everybody was predicting, and that would be the end of the story. Um, so I figured it would take me three or four years to do these experiments. And it turned out that the cells had a different idea in mind. <laughs> they, they gave a very different result than what everybody was expecting, including myself. And it took a lot longer to find out what actually was going on. Uh, to me, this is it's sort of like the archetype of how you want a scientific program to go. Mm -hmm. Like you have these, this inhibition-based model. You mm -hmm. have the feed-forward model, mm -hmm. um, starting with Hubel and Weasel, mm -hmm. that the observations you make right. whole cell or intracellularly give you a more nuanced version of that that right. seems to fit the data better than this other mm -hmm. model. So. Mm -hmm having these competing hypotheses against each other, 
so explicitly over your career, um, like it's a, it's a perfect example of, of the and synergy of theory and, and experiment. I, I, I agree. And, and, um, it, it's rare. It's rare to find a system in the brain where you have such clear-cut um, alternate models of what's going on and, and, and a system that provides you with such explicit ways of testing the models. Um, it, it, it's an unusual circumstance. I'm very lucky that I happen to fall into a situation where that could happen. I'm not sure you could do it as easily in other parts of the of the neural circuitry, there are a few, and um, so you, it's. But it's it's the exception rather than the rule, unfortunately. And it, and it's nothing to do with, as I'm, as I was saying. I think it's intrinsic to the problems that are out there, that not every problem lends itself to that kind of approach. I mean, Hurt Hubel and Weasel certainly didn't take it right. They they were their experiments were very different. At least the the their initial cortical recordings. They were exploring an unknown territory, and so there there were no models for what might happen. They were just discovering what was there to begin with. I'm a little curious how 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 you've seen the the field of vision research evolve over your career. So, um, visual neuroscience, visual psychophysics. Um, a lot has changed. A lot has stayed the same. Like, were there any dogmas that got shattered? Yeah. Are there any good examples of uh, radical paradigm shifts? Or uh, having seen this long history of, of visual neuroscience, do mm -hmm. you have any predictions about Ooh. what's next for <laughs> those of us that are left? Yeah. <laughs> what's the? Where's the low-hanging fruit, man? That's, that's all I want to right. Well, that's that's the trouble. Um, the field is a very mature one, right? People, I mean, even before Hubel and Weasel, people were studying and thinking about vision for decades, if not centuries. And when Hubel and Weasel did their experiments, it, it, it was a kind of, it was, you know, an, it opened a whole vista for thousands of people who came afterwards. And so we're, we're, and that was 50 years ago. So the, the field is very mature, and a lot of the questions that, that are still out there have been around for a long time. And um, there have been some significant breakthroughs, I guess you could call them, you know, surprising new um, results that, that send things off in a new direction. But neuroscience is a very difficult field in that regard. It, it re, because of the nature of the brain, it's so complicated on so many levels that um, it, it, it really is more of a gradual um, progress that each of us adds to in, in, in small ways. It's, it's hard to come up with, with radical new breakthroughs. I mean, if you look, the last... Uh, for the last several years, many of the breakthroughs have been technological more than they've been conceptual. And, you know, the advent of two-photon microscopy and optogenetics and now all the genetic techniques for labeling uh, different, um, different subsets of neurons. And it's taking a while, I think, for people to understand how to use those techniques and how do you, how, what kinds of questions can be asked with them. 
And we're also yeah. dealing with the problem of big data too right now. So right. we can gather all this information using right. all these new techniques, but right. actually figuring out what to do with yeah. it is up is, in the air. Is difficult. And and as always, I think the limiting the, the, the rate limiting step in in any science probably and certainly in neuroscience is designing the experiments, you know, finding the right questions to ask, finding the right match between these techniques and and the and the questions that can be asked with them. So things go, because that is such a difficult process, things go slowly. And because the brain, as I said, because the brain is so complicated and, and the, the general principles, the main principles really have been outlined, you know, by Sherrington and, you know, long ago by, by, the, by the early greats. Uh, and we're, we're trying to, to figure out, you know, how, how the details work. So since we're on the uh, we're on the topic of uh, developing tools, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, like we mentioned earlier, you're a professor emeritus. So you uh, are recently become emeritus, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and but you're not retired. Mm -hmm. uh, you are now actually working on on your own. Uh, uh, software and hardware. Mm -hmm. um, so, can you tell us a little bit about that and what what that transition, I guess, has been like? Uh, well, the transition happened over many many years. I started uh, writing software for other neuroscientists um, almost twenty years ago, not quite. Uh, and it was really by chance that that happened. I had a, a, a colleague in my department who was working on some problems that would benefit from a little bit of software and I like doing that and so I wrote a couple of programs for them and it developed from there right the, the, some of their colleagues you know the um, person I wrote the software for was very generous in in talking about it with other people and so I started getting inquiries from from various people and it, it kind of grew Naturally, I wasn't looking to become an entrepreneur. I wasn't looking to become a, a software vendor, but it it just developed organically, I guess you would say. And I enjoy it a great deal. It's like having a thousand collaborators, right? That that uh, that there are a lot of people using the tools that I've made, and and um, and they are the ones who come up with new ideas for how to make things move forward. You know, what would what features or or applications would help them get their work done, and I enjoy, you know, making tools like that. It's more it's more engineering than it is science, um, but it also happens to be something I I like doing. And so when the time came for me to decide, you know, am I going to continue doing academic science or not? Um, I had I had a ready-made hobby basically, <laughs> or something else to to uh, take up and so uh, which is not not common right it's not 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 always the case and so it, it, it helped ease the the decision it, it helped to form the decision does your does your company have a name you it's called actometrics actometrics yeah and um, you know the the tools that we make are I, I don't. I wouldn't say we develop new techniques. It's the scientists who are developing the scientific techniques, the new ways to to approach their their systems. But then I help make tools that allow them to use those techniques as efficiently as they can. Facilitates like data yeah. acquisition. Yeah, data acquisition, some analysis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So it is mostly for what we would call behavioral neuroscience. So circadian rhythms in particular, uh, fear conditioning, things like that. That's, that's really cool. It's a lot of fun. It, it, it's a very different kind of role in science. There's much less pressure in a sense because you're not working to get grants. You're not, you're not, you, don't, you don't have to write the papers. But you can create, you can try to help create tools that are fun to use and, and that help people you know, move things forward. It's, it's, I, I very much enjoy it. I wonder like, how your role in, because you know, from our perspective as is, 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 um, newbies, Mm. We're, we're, I always think about how we're trained to be bench scientists, and then when we, you know, get to you know a faculty position or something like that, mm-hmm. it becomes more difficult to be a bench scientist. You're more of an administrator. Yes, that that's a, It's very. It, it, it's a very interesting problem, right? You train yourself to become very good at something, and then. By virtue of having been trained to do so, you're kind of grandfathered out. Right. Right. So now yeah. your goal is to train other people to be. Yes. You leave, right. you leave lab work and you're essentially writing essay writing yeah, contests right. well, all the time. Well, <laughs> it, no, it's more. I mean, being a being a principal investigator is a lot more than that. And you're. I mean, I want to get back to that question, but mm-hmm. you're writing grants. You're 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 managing your students, right? And you're helping to train them and, and um, mentor them into becoming, you know, functioning scientists or whatever they choose to go off and do. You're, you're studying your field. You're trying to, des- uh, as I was saying, designing experiments is extremely difficult. And so you have to spend a lot of time thinking about that. And often the result is that you end up writing a grant about it or writing a paper and so you're spending a lot of time doing that but you're still you're still engaged in the science in, a, in the same way that you were as a bench scientist and I guess in that sense like yeah. you are trained to become a better person at asking questions right as a, as a bench right. scientist and that right. becomes one of yeah. your pivotal roles as a PI right and you can't be a PI without having had that experience of doing the experiments and and uh, analyzing the data yourself. and I tried to stay, and I succeeded, I think, at staying in the lab. I was in, I participated in every experiment in my laboratory for at least 15 years. So I, you know, I was, I was there for every, every experiment and, you know, patching cells and and I also built all the equipment and wrote all this, or most of the software for, for taking all the data in the laboratory. And so that kept me very involved for a long, long time. It was only when my lab grew a little bit to the point where I couldn't be in on every experiment and um, that I, I started to step back and become more the classical PI. Um, do you feel like right, your uh, your current role in your in in uh, your company is getting more back to like hands-on type development type stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, developing tools. I mean, of course, I don't do experiments. Right. Um, um, but but it is a di- it's a very different involvement in science compared to being a PI. 
on that note, we'd just like to thank you for joining us today and uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Neurotransmissions. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook at Neuropodcast on Twitter. I'm at Salad Zombie. Joe is at JW Science. Thank you so much for everybody in the Institute who helps make these episodes happen, uh, including the scientific communication staff. And uh, that's all we got for you today. All right. Subscribe on iTunes. Oh, yeah, totally subscribe and rate on iTunes. Okay, bye-bye. Mm-hmm.